how does that mesh together with films expected to be in theaters for a longer number of weeks before they're able to, you know, be deemed quote unquote successfully, especially a lot of these independent films that rely on word of mouth. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, a trade publication exclusively focused on covering theatrical exhibition. Joined today on the podcast by our deputy editor, Rebecca Polly, and our chief analyst, Sean Robbins. Guys, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Team Box Office. Yeah. We miss Russ, but it's nice to keep it entirely in-house. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great to be back on with you guys. Well, there's a lot to cover this week as we are just finishing up another round of uh, quarterly investor calls that we usually track here on Box Office, looking at the publicly traded companies in the space and seeing what they went through in any given quarter. This, of course, being anomaly, to say the least, this uh, Q2 2020 is probably going to be looked at historically the most difficult quarter for any company that is involved in exhibition. And that is no exception for the first two calls that we had during the week. Rebecca, you tackled coverage for Marcus Theaters and Cinemark. What were some of the highlights there? What we're looking at for for Cinemark and Marcus, uh, respectively the third and fourth biggest chains in the United States, is basically in terms of reopening dates, lining up with what AMC and Regal had previously announced. So you have Cinemark, which already has a couple theaters open to kind of like try out their new world way of doing things. They're going to start opening more theaters in earnest on August uh, 21st, Marcus same mid to late August. They haven't announced a specific date yet, but yeah, basically, you know, we're looking into everything falling into place in terms of a widespread reopening of theaters in the United States in late August. Of course, only areas where it's legally permitted to do so. But up to this point, like a lot of states have said you can open theaters and a lot of the major chains were like, nah, we're going to hold off. It's looking like this is going to be it, you know, barring some big changes in in COVID numbers over the next couple of weeks. Fingers crossed, guys. (laughs) So those announcements uh, regarding reopening dates for Marcus and Cinemark were pretty much uh, what we expected, given what the other major players in the U.S. uh, had been had been doing. Daniel, from what I understand, the AMC call uh, later on that week was a lot more dramatic. Let's use the word candid, which isn't a a word that we usually associate with these sort of uh, earnings calls. Usually, you know, to give you guys listening at home a a background of how this job works for us, reporting on it, um, Rebecca and I will sit down and take copious notes on like footprint of recliner seating and uh, all the new premium large format screens that, that these circuits are are bringing on. This was a little bit different, uh, to say the least, uh, when we are tackling just the sheer impact financially of what the closures have had. And that was certainly the case with, with AMC Theaters, which reported a loss of $561.2 million in its uh, second quarter alone. That made it, uh, in the words of its CEO, Adam Aaron, the most difficult quarter in the 100-year history of AMC theaters. Of course, with uh, most theaters in its multinational network closed, that is of uh, little surprise. 
What uh, did raise eyebrows, however, was the full-on support and uh, confidence that the circuit has on its new PVOD shortened window deal that it struck with Universal a couple of weeks back, where films have a 17-day exclusive run in cinemas before the studio makes them eligible. That means they don't necessarily have to go, but they are eligible to go to premium video on-demand platforms, where AMC theaters would get a portion of the digital rental revenue. Uh, This is a situation where I think uh, a lot of folks in the industry have sort of questioned what will happen with the theatrical window because of this deal. There really isn't uh, too much clarity. I understand, Rebecca, that uh, both uh, Marcus and Cinemark uh, had some comments uh, in their earnings call regarding this deal. They did. Both CEOs kind of had to address the the elephant in the room (laughs) that was that AMC Universal deal uh, before their investors asked them about it. Neither CEO was super specific. Obviously, this is an incredibly complicated issue and we're, you know, various studios and exhibitors are all having their own conversations about the nitty gritty. There's definitely some concern there, the way that the window is being shortened. You know, there was an interesting argument that Greg Marcus made, which is that uh, with a lot of these streaming platforms, the streamers will advertise the platform itself or so than individual movies. And, you know, he brought up that theatrical runs can be a key way of increasing the profile of a movie, maybe even when the traditional three-month window hasn't been kept to, maybe when something, you know, is on streaming. You know, there are a lot of discussions taking place as to if the theatrical window has to change, what it's going to look like when it does, and how different side debate can kind of work together. Daniel, like you mentioned, this is a conversation that's been happening for ages and ages and has fizzled over and over again. Obviously, obviously things are different now and, and exhibitors are in a much different place than they were last year. Absolutely. I think it's a very sensitive time that is pushing some conversations further along than than we might have seen otherwise. And I think part of that uncertainty from other exhibitors in wanting to come out with a more firm response is waiting to see what the impact of uh, moves such as Disney pushing Mulan to PVOD will have and really how these conversations evolve little by little. Adam Aaron in AMC's earnings call explaining that even after a film goes to PVOD, AMC will keep those universal and focus feature titles in their theaters if they believe there's still a value there. And uh, giving a little bit more insight as to the marketing process of those titles that might go to PVOD a little bit early. So uh, in that earnings call, Adam Aaron explaining that Universal has agreed to not include the PVOD date for these releases until at least 10 days or two weekends into a film's theatrical run. That means when these films are marketed across every platform, they will say exclusively in theaters or only in theaters, a variation of that for at least two weeks, which as we know is where the bulk of all advertising for studio releases comes in. Now, as we talk about studio releases and uh, the economic impact of that, Sean, you've been tracking the international box office markets, seeing what's opening up, what's getting out there. And of course, we also had the IMAX earnings call last week. Could you give us some details on that? 
Yeah, I think uh, out of all the the news we're we're tracking these days, the one bright spot seems to be coming from international markets, and so far it's it's kind of a consistent trend upward. And IMAX in particular, I think, has been a a big driver of that because uh, for a lot of the reasons that they discussed on their call. Yeah, their auditoriums are more favorable to social distancing than I think uh, a lot of people, particularly outside the industry, have given movie theaters credit for because it is a very static environment. And that's something that they emphasized on their call as they get ready to continue reopening and and look toward North American reopenings here in the near future, hopefully. Pretty much all the uh, the general guidelines we're kind of hearing from other exhibitors up to this point. And uh, we can call them the COVID greatest hits at this point. Right. <laughs> That's probably fair. <laughs> and I think one of the, the other advantages to the IMAX side of things is that they have this global network and a lot of relationships with multiple studios, multiple theater owners and filmmakers, of course, as, as we know with Christopher Nolan being in the headline, anytime theaters are mentioned these days. So as markets reopen, they're really a company that's uh, in one of the safer positions, relatively speaking. One of the markets that IMAX is really strong in is Korea. That's only a one of a relatively small number of markets that we're seeing uh, consistent box office reporting from a mix of local stuff and older Hollywood releases. Sean, what are we seeing there in terms of like what's hitting and what's not? Yeah, Peninsula is definitely a great uh, kind of champion, I think, so far because it, uh, it performed very well. It was IMAX's widest premiere for a South Korean film that they have ever done. And it was a major driver in the company earning its first million dollar global weekend since the pandemic began five months ago. From there, though, like you said, we're also looking at other countries and 624, I believe, was the last reported number that IMAX had opened at the end of July. That's steadily increasing week to week. And that represented about 40 percent of their footprint at the time. And a good chunk of that is in China where about a little over 400 screens had opened up. But they're targeting, by the end of August, everything is, of course, hinged around that tenant release date. So even though uh, they're they're still rolling up, they're they're projecting it'll be much higher, closer to 90, 80 to 90% by then. And, uh, you know, South Korea has been a major driver. A lot of re-releases have done well. The Netherlands reported 30 straight sold-out shows of Interstellar. Japan sold a million dollars in a a re-release of Akira. And France has been rolling steady with their content as well. So it's definitely, uh, it's not limited to just one market. From that investor call that AMC just had, the circuit is expecting all of its international locations and approximately two-thirds of its U.S. cinemas open by the end of August. Uh, We know that our, our colleagues in European markets are looking forward for that advanced ticketing window to open up so they can finally begin selling tickets for a new release that is expected to begin in mid-August with uh, different cinemas in different countries finally getting a sense of what they can expect with new films coming in to their screens. The other big story I think that we really have to hit on here, Rebecca, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the latest developments with the Paramount Decrees, a story that you've been uh, following since late last year. As if there has not been enough crazy, big theatrical exhibition news altogether at once. Yes, uh, the Paramount Decrees have officially been done away with. The DOJ filed a motion to dismiss them in November, so we knew this was coming. But it just did finally happen that the Paramount Decrees are done for. Now, just just as a quick recap, you know, these were initially filed back in 38. 
kind of as a means to try and equal the balance of power between between studios and exhibitors in terms of what it means for the consent decrees to be kaput. Uh, really, it's easier to say what it doesn't mean. A lot of the headlines that have been floating around on this subject are kind of big, bombastic things like, oh, Netflix can buy a movie theater chain, Disney can buy a movie theater chain. The Paramount decrees aren't what stopped for example, Disney or Netflix from doing that. The Paramount consent decrees only applied to seven studios and said that they cannot own over a certain number of theaters. Netflix wasn't around back when the whole uh, Paramount consent decrees happened. Disney was around, but it was by no means like this giant, powerful corporation that has the power to buy theaters. And, you know, I think what we're looking at with the Paramount consent decrees is that technically now, yes, a Disney or a Netflix could buy a movie theater chain, same as they could before. The issue that we've been seeing before now, and certainly these past couple of weeks in the earnings calls, is that it's expensive to own a movie theater chain. A bit risky right now? It's a little risky. It's a little expensive. It's big news and it's certainly historical news. But in terms of, of, of practically what it means right now, in terms of like the immediate change to the exhibition landscape, I don't know. Daniel, I'm, I'm not really seeing any huge immediate changes that I think are going to come from this. Yeah, I think we pretty much line up in, in that analysis. Now, Disney does own a cinema. They own uh, the iconic El Capitan Theater in Los Angeles. Again, as, as you noted, they weren't named or part of the original Paramount Decrees, so they did have an option to go into business and, and operate uh, cinemas. Their strategy up until now has been just to have that one iconic location in a way very similar to what Netflix has done with its involvement with cinemas like uh, the Paris Theater here in New York or the Egyptian in Los Angeles. It ends up being sort of a showcase location where they can host premieres and uh, help uh, boost titles during an award season platform release. I think something that we do have to clarify as we enter this post-Paramount Decrease universe is that M&A activity in exhibition for anyone following this industry has been fervent up until this point, meaning this isn't something that uh, the pandemic brought about. This trend in mergers and acquisitions through multinational global circuits has been arguably the biggest story that we've been tracking in this publication for the last half decade. To give you an idea, as we entered 2020, we expected there to be a new global exhibitor to take that crown from AMC theaters as the one with the highest screen count around the world. That would have happened when Cineworld, the parent company of US's Regal Cinemas, made a bid for Canada Cineplex, the number one circuit in that country, that was all but a done deal. We all expected the, that deal to be finalized when the three of us would find ourselves in Las Vegas for CinemaCon 2020. Lo and behold, uh, the pandemic threw a curveball. That deal is now kaput. It is no longer happening. M&A has been fervent, not really because there's been other industries wanting to get into the business. It's been more these big multinational exhibition circuits expanding that global footprint, entering countries like Canada, entering countries like the United States. I think it's very telling that a European circuit like the Belgium-based Canepolis 
in the last two years, went into Canada with a number two circuit there, Landmark Cinemas of Canada, and also acquired a, a small regional theater network in Michigan, MJR Theaters, to basically dip their toes into the U.S. waters. We have Mexico's two main exhibition circuits, uh, Cinepolis and Cinemex, uh, as we previously mentioned, also coming into the U.S. market. And of course, uh, Rebecca mentioning that South Korean market, which has only been growing in recent years, their exhibition giant there, CJCGV, has also been quietly growing here in the U.S. in the background. So there has been a lot of M&A in this space, just not from other players uh, like the Amazons, like the Netflixes of the world. I would be very surprised if today studios that are juggling additional expenses from launching an SVOD platform, launching these new PVOD models that will figure out just how profitable they are, and also balancing the financial challenges of how to produce a movie during a pandemic and how to release that movie to theaters uh, during these restricted admission cycles, I just don't see them taking that additional risk in going heavy into the exhibition business. No, absolutely not. I mean, D Disney on their most recent earnings call uh, where they announced the Mulan PBOD news announced also that they're out multiple billions of dollars, largely from their theme parks not being open. Like you said, it, there's been a lot of fear around the Paramount consent decrees of, of the exhibition industry contracting, you know, theaters owned by a smaller and smaller number of corporations. That was already happening. <laughs> like they say, the, the call's coming from inside the house. But, you know, in the meantime, we're not quite, I don't think, to the point of theaters continuing to snap each other up because at least in the United States, no one's really making any money right now to speak of. You know, Sean, how does this uh, look over the next couple months in terms of, of the release schedule and things getting back to quote unquote normal? I think at this point, we're just kind of we're waiting to get that first movie out there and then the second movie and then the third movie. And I think that's it's just going to be this steady roll up through most likely the end of the year, especially with the number of changes and delays that we've seen. Of course, we've covered Tenet endlessly in, in various ways. Mulan, which other outlets are supposedly we haven't received independent confirmation, but we'll be getting a Chinese release. So that'll hopefully be a big boost to that market. Uh, but we're also looking at films like A Quiet Place 2, which is now moving to next year, next April. Conjuring 3 moved to next summer. Top Gun Maverick moved to next summer. And a few of these have kind of built up over the last few weeks. But what this means really for the rest of this year is that studios are looking at theaters being able to reopen in limited terms. When you look at the calendar, pretty much it looks as if markets are ready to support maybe one big film per month. Uh, because once we get Tenet and and then a few other low to mid-range titles like Unhinged and uh, The King's Man in September, it'll be October before we get Wonder Woman, assuming it doesn't change. And then at that point, there are just a few other smaller titles in October before we get to the holiday season in November, which is really where it seems like things are starting to coalesce around this expectation of being able to get that calendar back to normal. But as we know, anything can change these days and even though we're in August now, November feels so far away. So optimistically, uh, it looks like we'll, we'll start to get more than one blockbuster returning by November. But I think this is really a recovery that's that's going to play out over a longer period of time. And, you know, the back end of this, the good news is that 2021 is looking bigger and bigger with the number of films that have been pushed to that year. 
So, Sean, as we prepare for this awkward transition cycle in cinemas reopen and these sort of city-by-city releases, what metric are you going to be looking at to gauge the success of theatrical up until that November corridor? Should we be looking at opening weekend? Should we be looking at increasing location counts in subsequent weeks? Or should we be looking at three or four first weeks of a theatrical run? All of the above. Yeah, I mean, that really is... This is going to be the new way of of measuring success for any new release. And I think it's very important that we get used to that idea of abandoning this notion of looking at opening weekend and saying that was a success or that was not a success because you said it exactly right. I think this is going to turn into a situation where particularly in North America, as, as we kind of stagger behind other countries and reopening, we could see a film open in, you know, 1500 to 2000 locations and then steadily climb, hopefully closer to that 3,000 mark over a few weeks, which is typically what we would see for a, a normal opening weekend. And that kind of ties us back around to the AMC Universal situation with the windows being shortened. How does that mesh together with films expected to be in theaters for a longer number of weeks before they're able to you know, be deemed, quote unquote, successfully, especially a lot of these independent films that rely on word of mouth? Granted, we're, this is only Universal and, and Focus who have this deal, but if we're looking towards a kind of a longer-term ripple effect down the road, I mean, could this be harmful? That's a fair question that I, I wish we had the answer for. I think our, our ideal scenario here is that we kind of take this deal at its word and that they're saying any films that are doing well will stay in theaters, that Universal won't rush a film to PVOD if it's you know raking in cash from exhibitors. So... I think it's just a situation where we have to see the first example or the first few examples of how that plays out. But, you know, ultimately, kind of like you guys have talked about a lot, too, I think this really will become more of a post-pandemic discussion, especially given the the lack of support from most exhibitors and, and the fact that this is confined to one studio and one exhibitor. And honestly, Universal doesn't really have a lot of titles coming out for a while until next what year. What do they have? They have Candyman, yeah. October, and what titles does this even apply to over the next exactly. rest of the year? Yeah, really the first significant title outside of Candyman. I mean, their their next big tentpole is Fast 9, and that's next April. So we're so far down the road, I think, from being able to see the real ramifications of that. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, a lot of uh, heavy news to, to tackle and, and analyze as we continue tracking the latest developments in theatrical exhibition. And if you're listening at home and want to learn what else has been happening since we recorded this, don't forget to visit us at boxofficepro.com where you can read the he- latest headlines in the industry or subscribe to our monthly magazine, box office pro which is coming back with our next issue rebecca when is that our next issue is in october Ooh, nice very excited to be working on it it's nice it's it's good that we're going back to our uh, regular jobs on behalf of box office pro and the box office studios thanks again for joining this episode was written by Daniel Luria, myself, along with Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins. And the Box Office Podcast is produced, as always, by Caitlin Kehoe and our friends at recordeditpodcast.com, led by Bradley Denham. Thanks again. <laughs>